Welcome to Population Health Equity, Finding Common Brain. The seventh episode in the series, Population Health, The Unfinished Journey with Dave Kendig. I'm Sandy Magnan and I'm here with Dave Kendig. Hi, Dave. Hey, Sandy. Good to be back with you this week. Yeah, so we've come a long way in this journey with you as a thought leader in population health. Now, I know you spent a lot of time thinking about equity and disparities. Uh, yeah, I have. I mean, over my whole, over all these 40 or 50 years, um, way back in the beginning to the South Bronx OEO Neighborhood Health Center and the National Health Service Corps, but more recently from a more um, academic, uh, scholarly per perspective, I guess. You know, we have to say up front that we are two white and financially secure people talking about equity and disparities, but it's been part of your career and your journey in population health. So I don't think that means we should not discuss the topic. However, we, both of us should be humble about our limitations in addressing this is issue. Yeah, absolutely, Sandy. A year in my lived experience is dramatically different than most people of color, people in poverty, and people with disability or other disparity domains. Dave, now your 2003 definition of population health incorporated equity. Here's what you said. Population health is the out health outcomes of a group of individuals, including the distribution of such outcomes within the group. Let me just say that last part again, including the distribution of such outcomes within the group. Now that was back in 2003. How did your attention and thinking on equity evolve from the beginning of your career until now? Yeah, <clears throat> right. Um, and I think I mentioned before that uh, we rarely use the term equity um, in my book and in that article, distribution <laughs> was the more sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, the way we talked about it. Um, but in, but you know, from the past, I mean, I have had a general concern about disparities throughout my career. I mean, it began in coming to Chicago South Side in 1960s for medical school, my social medicine residency in an OEO health center in the South Bronx, setting up the National Health Service Corps in 1971. And even then, early on, several early papers on minority physician supply and racial differences in life expectancy. Also during my sabbatical in York, when I wrote the book, I was amazed to find that most European or at least British health economists were as concerned about ethical distribution issues as they were about market, market forces, supply and demand. I mean, most of those economists also seem to be ethicists um, to me. So in the 2003 definitional article, we said um, just what you said, uh, the including the distribution of self outcomes within a group and went on to say, which allows one to consider health inequality and inequity and the distribution of health across subpopulations, as well as the value and ethical considerations underpinning those issues. Um, 
definitions are important as we talk about equity in many of our topics. Um, that sentence hints at, but is not crystal clear that disparities are statistical differences and inequities are those disparities with moral issues of being unfair or unjust. We usually use disparities to refer to both because of some of the measurement and conceptual issues with fairness. From the beginning, I've always considered population health as in that definition to have two equal goals, raising overall health and reducing the gaps across subgroups. They are equally important, but have to be considered in relation to each other. Having equal but low levels of health would not be adequate or equitable. So tell us more about that path between the recognition, but not a lot of attention in 2003, and then how to you have been focusing more recently, more fully on disparities and equity and, and the importance of closing those gaps. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to reflect on how much attention has shifted to this aspect of equity. Uh, these days, my book would have had one or more chapters on this subject, even though the Evans book in 1994 was titled, Why Are Some Populations Healthy and Others Not?, generally implying disparities. It only had a, a chapter three on heterogeneities in health status, um, even more abs abstract from disparities or from um, distributions. But this was a very broad treatment, primarily focusing on social class differences with racial immigration briefly mentioned as one population health partition. And the word inequity mentioned once, but not further developed. That's, that's their book in 94. Um, in this period, David Williams, among others, but particularly David was a valued colleague with all of his important and ongoing early work uh, about the, the disparity and equity issues. And Yukiko Asada was my PhD focus student focusing on equity. I was so stimulated by her thinking and her dissertation and her book called Morals and Measures. My thinking was also influenced by several empiric papers examining differences in county health outcomes and state health outcomes and noticing that race was important, of course, but much less so when controlling for other factors like income and education that underpin some of the racial differences. So Dave, let me, let me push you a little bit in this area. I've noticed that despite your deep concern about equity, you haven't really published anything specifically about racial disparities and racism. Why, why is that? Yeah, well, I appreciate that question. Uh, and it's something I wanna be really clear about. I fully understand and accept the ra unacceptable racial disparities in health and that racism is one factor causing them. Despite the findings in the last paper we discussed, um, I'm aware that racial disparities persist even among high SES black people, in part from the stress of racism. 
there were several reasons from my departure from a classic racial emphasis on equity. The first was that by 2015, so much terrific work was already being done, uh, often by great scholars who had that lived experience. The second was my developing unease, even then, on the political and racial divisions in the country. I've always been moderate in ideology and management. I try to learn from more radical perspectives in colleagues, even way back in medical school, but then to see how it can be actually incorporated. Politics is the art of the, of the possible. Maybe also um, being from a purple state um, makes me more sensitive to that issues. So in 2015, I wrote the piece in the Millbank called, Can There Be Political Common Ground for Improving Population Health? I said, and I'm gonna quote from this, I refuse to join with many people on the left and the right of our political spectrum who claim that the same ideological differences that poison our efforts on hot button issues like abortion and gun control and mainstream issues like managing the economy must also block efforts to improve population health. It would be unrealistic to think that we will ever have complete equality of health or shared values, but is there a compelling reason that we can't build coalitions among persons who embrace competing ideologies to accelerate community well-being and national economic security? Dave, thank you for uh, calling us to that common ground, which, which I think is a, is a higher ground. Um, so I know that the books by Haidt, um, Jonathan Haidt and uh, Eisenberg were particularly, uh, Nancy Eisenberg were particularly quite influential to you at this time of your career of your 50 decades pursuing population health and population equity. Tell us more about that. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, and occasionally, you know, a book that you come across and don't expect to find can be, can be kind of profound. And in, in this case, both of the, the, those, those books were. As I noted regarding terminology, lack of fairness is a primary characteristic that makes simple differences or disparities inequitable. However, agreeing on the concept of fairness is a challenge, particularly across political beliefs. The social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, profiles six basic human value uh, sets three held both by liberals and conservative, care, liberty, and fairness, while conservatives find meaning in an additional three, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. He argues that fairness is shared by both ideologies, but he points out a nuance about this value domain. Everyone cares about fairness, but there are two major kinds. On the left, fairness often implies equality, but on the right, it means proportionality. People should be rewarded in proportion to what they contribute, even if that guarantees unequal outcomes. Fairness is therefore a value that all Americans uphold, 
even though they may think of it in different ways. Finding common ground, or at least recognizing <clears throat> the ideological differences regarding fairness may be one of the toughest challenges in improving health equity. At the same time that I was appreciating the new data and research on racial disparities, it seemed limiting to me since there are other disparities as well, um, income, um, disability, gender, other domains. One day by chance, I picked up uh, in a bookstore near my rural woods, just by chance, a book called by Nancy Eisenberg called White Trash, The 400 Year Untold History of Class in America. Uh, of course, the title may seem uh, offensive to some, but it certainly catches your eye if you're thinking about these things. I was again blown away by my lack of historical knowledge. And I wrote in the JAMA paper, the health burden of poor white individuals derives in part from a different but related social policy history than that for racial minorities. Eigesenberg has suggested that these policies derive from British colonial policies dedicated to resettling the poor, decisions that conditioned American notions of class and left a permanent, in, in permanent imprint. Her book chronicles the under underappreciated 400 year history of such policies, beginning with the colonists importing British paupers and children as indentured servants, discriminatory land purchasing and voting rights policies, and in the early 20th century, the rebirth of the eugenics movement. And all of this came together in the, my most provocative paper, what I just referred to, 2017 JAMA, Population Health Equity, Rate and Burden, Race or Class. And in that paper, I wrote what, and again, very carefully, the, uh, perhaps one of my more radical or contrarian statements, um, the effort to reduce health disparities is hindered by viewing health equity only in terms of racial inequities. Such a view can make it too easy for some policymakers to perceive and act as though high rates of poor health by race are not a primary concern to them and their constituents because their constituents primarily um, represent white citizens. However, individuals who are white and those who are ethnic minorities are both affected by the health equity gap together. This understanding could lead to more common ground for the substantial investment in policy reforms that alone will improve overall health and reduce these unacceptable gaps. I wrote this so carefully and sensitively worried about being racially offensive or politically incorrect. <laughs> I believe I showed you an early version and, and you quoted, maybe only you have the moxie to say this. Um, I actually trembled when I pushed the submit key, but it was immediately uh, accepted by JAMA. Dave, I think it's interesting to note that that thread of more common ground it, it pervades into other articles that you wrote. You weren't writing these to be provocative per se, even though it ended up 
being provocative, but you were writing it to help to build common ground and to look for things. So, so tell us more about the absolute numbers affected by disparities as well as the rates. So you've got that title of the article in JAMA, Rate and Burden, Race and Class. So tell us about that burden part, the absolute numbers. Um, sure. Um, so the JAMA piece actually began with that often unnoticed rate and burden common ground point. Um, actually, the, that article begins with the same issue about uh, uh, black shootings um, in terms of the rates of shootings versus the absolute numbers. Um, in this uh, article, expanding on that idea, I wrote this, a smaller subgroup can have a high rate of poor health outcomes or determinants as with African-American or Native American infant mortality, but not the largest absolute number of deaths per population simply due to lower population size. It's not fancy math. Um, we looked at infant mortality data in Wisconsin, and we found that while Blacks had much higher and shocking rates for whites, 14 versus 4.8, white mothers accounted for 59% of those absolute numbers of deaths um, compared to 23% for black mothers. Both are important and higher rates, and this is an important point, higher rates may require more per capita investment, but the absolute number or burden should be taken into consideration from a population health policy and investment perspective. I must say that some valued colleagues here were concerned about additional drafts, perhaps because of the contrarian and stark quantitative approach. And I appreciate and acknowledge their help with this closing language in this article. Quote, a pain of losing a baby knows no statistical boundary. How do we build statewide collaborations that recognize and remedy common structural drivers of poor health outcomes, while at the same time addressing drivers unique to the rural and urban context. Can the advocates for the lost African-American babies and the advocates for urban, suburban, and rural white mothers who have lost an infant join cause with the understanding that what they have in common is much greater than any geographic or racial differences? Well said, Dave, well said. But, you know, you did have some pushback on that rate and burden racing class article, didn't you? I mean, I, I remember being in a meeting with you and other colleagues of ours, and we had asked you to present your paper so we could have some discussion about it and ask for feedback. And a dear African-American colleague said, you know, your, your paper doesn't take into account historical trauma that's been suffered by many population groups. You, you know, you acknowledge that was so, but it's another example, at least for me, of how equity is complicated, but it doesn't mean we should stop trying to understand some of the nuances. And maybe, maybe someday we will have a measure 
of historical trauma that we could make part of this addressing health equity and disparities. Yeah, that, that's true. I, I really appreciated that discussion and the ability that we could have a frank discussion about racial issues um, in, a, in, a, in a mixed group. Um, I'm sh I, I totally acknowledge the historical trauma issue, um, but different groups have different trauma experiences. Um, and you know, I hope we can develop some measures of that. Um, we're, we're currently working um, in the county health rankings group on a new equity model. And we were just yesterday discussing how history fits into the model and what modifiable factors from history like reparations or redlining could be built in. I'll look forward to seeing uh, that new model when it comes out. Well, we're at the end of this podcast, Dave, and I'm gonna to try to summarize some of the takeaways from this part of your career and population health, but uh, please be thinking if there are other things to say here. The first takeaway is that you do believe finding common ground on health equity is still possible and that you refuse to join with people who are on both the left and the right of the political spectrum who, who say that these differences poison our efforts on trying to build population health common ground, that the hot button issues that are poisoning our other things bleed into improving population health. The second one, I heard you saying and comes comes through is that addressing racism is central and essential to black and other inequities. But there's a counterpart history of poor white classism that persists today as well. And it's something that's not well understood, needs policy attention, just like racism and the black inequities and other needs need attention. And then the last one I heard you saying is that, and it goes back to your rate and burden racing class in addition, is that absolute numbers are as important as high rates and can understanding burden and rate, can that lead to more black, white, urban, rural, other common ground platforms on equity policy and investment. Is there anything else you want to add to that, Dave? No, I think that's uh, I think that's plenty for for this for this episode. I, I appreciate um, the thoughtful questions that you um, inserted into this interview. Well thank you for being vulnerable and willing to address them. Hey listeners, thank you for joining us today in the series Population Health, the Unfinished Journey with David Kendig. Thanks for that story, Dave, of that intellectual and moral journey. Join us next time for more on this with population health equity, crucial and complicated. Links, more information about the series and references for today's presentation are available in the show notes at www.iaphs.org interdisciplinary association for population health sciences thank you bye dave